Ephesians chapter 1. I had anticipated that this morning uh, we would go forward uh, with our study of the church and I was anticipating that we would look at Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16 and uh, uh, in continuing that study. But as I started studying those verses, I found out that we needed to understand what Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians 4 to really understand verses 11 through 16. And then I found out that the beginning of chapter 4 actually were builds off of chapter 3 and Chapter 3 builds off of chapters 1 and 2, and so when I got back to chapter 1, I found the resurrection of Christ, and I, and, uh, and I just couldn't get away from that. And so I think the Lord will have us look here at the resurrection of Christ in chapter 1. I think that was his way of saying to me that my plan was not his plan, and uh, he wanted us today at least to give attention to the resurrection of Christ. But what this will do is it will help us, hopefully, to understand the whole book of Ephesians in a way. And then when we come to chapter 4, we'll be able to understand, I think, maybe a little bit better what he's saying there to us about the church. We'll try to come back to that next week. So uh, let's just pray together to the Lord and ask for his help. Lord God, these are your words. You have given them to us by your spirit. He is the one who has moved those men of old uh, to write down the things that you uh, revealed to them. So, Lord, these are not merely Paul's words. This is not merely an ancient document. This is a, a book in which you are speaking to us. And you want us to know your will. You want us to know you and what you are doing in the world. And we pray that what we look at this morning would contribute to that. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We have... Uh, examined uh, the fact that our world today is a world of chaos and conflict and strife. And you don't have to look at the news for very long to figure that out. Uh, there is chaos on the international scene. Uh, markets are up and down and there's war and uh, conflict and strong words that are exchanged and uh, nations that are aggressive, and uh, then we can look even in our own country. Things are not all that they could be, right? <laughs> and we can look at families, uh, the rate of divorce, of child abuse, of parents who do not love their children, and children who do not honor and obey their parents. Uh, the family relationships are torn apart, and uh, even in our world here in Brisbane, there are so many different nationalities and, and ethnicities that have all come together, and yet, how well do we actually get along? How well do we actually live together? Is there, is there conflict? Maybe not openly sometimes. Our laws do a good job of making sure that the surface stays smooth. But underneath, how connected are people actually? Or are we isolated? Do we live in our own world? Our world today is a world that's largely characterized by conflict. Um, and that should not surprise us based upon what we have seen about our relationship to God. 
What is the character of human beings' relationship to God at the moment? Is it all peace and well-being? No, there is great conflict between God and man. God's wrath is revealed, Paul tells us, in heaven against all of our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And man, for his part, has not responded to God with love and charity and kindness. Man is a rebel against God, and sometimes we see that openly. Sometimes it's something that remains dormant in the human heart until God says, you must obey me. And then people are like, no way, I'm not obeying you. I'm going to do my own thing, live the way that I want. In the beginning, when God created this world, all of it was focused upon him. We've seen that in the Garden of Eden. And so because of, because of that common focus, there was unity in this world. There was no strife between Adam and Eve because they both were focused upon God. Cain and Abel's strife came from the fact that when they both came to bring their offering to the Lord, one of them was not truly focused upon worshiping God. One of them was focused upon himself. And so because God received Abel's but not Cain's offering, Cain, because of his conflict then with God, is now at conflict with his brother. And so the reason for the conflict in our world today is because of our conflict with God. And we have seen this, and I think the Tower of Babel shows us that quite clearly. There's, there's no unifying center in the world today. What, what would unite progressives and, and conservatives today in this world? Well, very little, right? <laughs> what would unite a husband and a wife who are both intent on pleasing themselves and living their lives for themselves? What would unite an Asian and a, and, and a, and a South American person? They live in their own worlds with their own worldview, seeking to please themselves. Every man, every family, every nation, we all do what is right in our own eyes. And the result of that is conflict, or at least isolation. This world does not exist as a unity, as a single mind. The world is splintered today. And that's very different than the world that God created. God created a world that was perfectly unified, and yet today there is this strife and conflict. What does God intend to do about that? Is he content that it would remain that way forever? And that's where Ephesians 1 gives us an answer to what God's will is for this world. Where is it all going to go? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And starting then in verse 4 all the way down to the end of verse 14, Paul lists so many of these spiritual blessings that we have. We have redemption. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God's love for us. So many spiritual blessings that are ours because of Christ. But one of those spiritual blessings is in verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that God, one of the things that he has blessed us with is this. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. How many people actually know what God is doing in the world today? Very, very few. And yet we are the ones to whom God has made known the mystery of his will. What is God's will? It's something that's hidden from the world today. It's a mystery. And yet he has made that mystery known to us. He's opened up the mystery so that we may see it. And what is it? His mystery, verse 9, is according to his purpose. What he's going to do in this world is exactly what he's purposed to do. And this purpose is what he set forth in Christ 
His will is a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, what's, where's this world going? What's it going to be like when the times reach their fullness on that great day? Here is God's plan. His plan is to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. That's a reversal from what we see the world is like today. God creates the world in unity and harmony and peace. Sin comes in. It creates disharmony and discord and conflict. But God's intention is at the fullness of the times, when the times reach their fullness, God's intention is to once again unite, unify all things in Christ. Now that word unite or unify in verse 10 the best English word that I can find for it is the word subsume. In fact, it has, right in the middle of that word, it has the word for a head. And so we might understand it this way. The, the ESV is translating that to unite all things in him. Other translations say to bring unity to all things under Christ. But the heart of this word is the word for a head. And so what we might say about this word is that God's intention is to subsume all things under the headship of Christ. So think about the reason for the conflict today. Why is there conflict? Because God's no longer the head. There's no longer a single head. We're all going our own directions, pursuing our own lusts and pleasures. God's intention one day is that Christ should be the head of all things. And the result of that is unity. It will all be united one day in Christ. And this is what we read of throughout the scripture. We read of the lion lying down with the lamb. We read of God coming down to dwell amongst mankind. How can he do that today? There's great tension between God and man today because of sin. But through Jesus Christ, that will all be put right. Heaven and earth will be one. There will be nothing that goes its own way. It will all be focused upon Christ as the head. This is God's plan for this universe and it is our blessing from God to know this. Why is it a blessing from God for us to know this? And that's what actually verses 15 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4 and all the way to the end of the book of Ephesians are all about. Why is it such a blessing for us to know this? And the second question that I've got for you is this. How's God going to bring this about? Where all things are united to Christ. And once again, dwelling in unity and harmony and peace. <clears throat> well, how all of this is going to come about is fascinating when you read the book of Ephesians. And it's something that God wants us to understand. And I say that for two reasons. <clears throat> the first is because Paul says... One of God's blessings is to make this known to us. So if we don't come to know it, we've missed the blessing. So it's important that we come to understand what Paul is actually saying here and what this all means. But the other reason why I say <clears throat> that this is something we've got to work to understand is because of what Paul says in verse 15. He says, for this reason, in light of all these blessings that God's poured out upon you, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
Paul says, I give thanks, but I'm also praying, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul says, I'm praying that by God's Holy Spirit's work, you might have insight and wisdom and understanding of these things. Verse 18, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that somebody could turn the lights on so that in your heart you could see these things and understand them, so that you may know. Know three things. First of all, the hope to which he has called you. We live under the hope of these things. We know they're coming, that God will unite all things in Christ. And Paul says, I pray that you would know that hope, that you would really feel it, experience it, live in light of it. He says, I'm praying that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. And this is where we'll focus our time now, verse 19. Paul says, I'm praying that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Now, all of those sound very different from what we have read in verses 9 and 10. But actually, those things, one day I would love to preach through the book of Ephesians and make these connections for you. We're not going to take the time this morning. If you want to talk about this later, we can. But all I'm going to say at this point is those three things that Paul's praying for in verses 18 through 19 are actually what we saw in verses 9 and 10. God's plan is this, Paul says, and he says, I pray that you would come to know and understand these things. And the final thing that he prays there in verse 19 is that we would come to understand what the immeasurable greatness of God's power is toward us who believe. God has worked uh, uh, something that Paul says is just unspeakably powerful. Paul says, I'd really like for you to get that and understand that and know that. What is this act of unspeakable power that God has worked? Well, look at the rest of the verse. It is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What happened when God raised Christ from the dead? A lot. And Paul says, in raising Christ from the dead, that was an act of God's power. God poured out great power from heaven, and this dead man rose up to new life. And actually, Paul isn't finished there. He's going to talk uh, in verse 20 now about not only raising Christ up, but taking him up into heaven and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. How high did God raise Jesus up when he raised him from the dead? Verse 21, he raised him up far above all ruler, all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So every being in the history of this world and every being in the world to come, think of all of their power combined God raised up Jesus Christ from a tomb in Judea and set him at his own right hand far above all of them. That was the power that God worked in the resurrection. But why does Paul want us to understand this? What's his point? Well, go back with me just for a second here to verse 19. Paul prays that we might know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable power immeasurable greatness of his power toward us 
God's power toward us. And then verse 20, uh, verse 19, sorry, this power that he's exercised toward us is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. So God did two things by his great power. He did something for us, verse 19, and he did something for Christ by his great power. And the, two, the little two words that connect what he did for us and what he did for Christ are in verse 19. They're the words, according to. See those two words? Now, anytime we say that something is according to something else, we're saying there's some correspondence between them. They're similar in a way. What God did for us connects with what God did for Christ. You say, what in the world is he talking about? Well, verse 19, God's power toward us who believe. Paul's actually going to tell us about that in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. What has God done for us? Well, let's look at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, yeah, what did God do? What great act of power did he, did he bring about for us? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. What power? Dead people like us, God makes us alive. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 19. The great act of unspeakable power that God wrought toward us who believe. And let's keep reading. What did he do for us? He made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What did God do? Here we are, dead. Raises us up, takes us up with Christ into the heavenlies, and seats us there. It's a done deal. Great act of unspeakable power. We, dead in trespasses and sins, now seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What power that took, and God exercised it. And Paul says that that power that God wrought in us to do those things, that power is according to the power that he wrought in Christ. In other words, there's some correspondence between the two. And let's see if we can follow this now, okay? Look back with me now at verse 19 of chapter 1. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, God's great power towards Christ, what did he do for Christ? He raised him from the dead and took him up into heaven and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. God did the same thing for us that he did for Christ. And that's why I look back at chapter 2, verse 5. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. In other words, God didn't actually do two different things. He didn't do something for us and something for Christ. He did something for Christ, and he did it for us with him, because we were in him. 
Does that make sense? And that's why Paul can say that what he did for Christ aligns with, it's according to what he did for us. This is God's work. His work toward us and his work toward Christ. Now, what did God do in raising Christ from the dead? Go back to chapter 1, verse 20. God works an act of unspeakable power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. When God raised up Christ from the dead, he made him head. See that in verse 22? He put all things under his feet and gave him as head. Do you remember what that word in verse 10 meant? To unite all things in Christ? It means that God is going to set Christ as head and all things will find their unity in him. Now that's what's coming in the future at the fullness of the time, chapter 1, verse 10. But Paul says here in verse 20 that God raised Christ from the dead and set him as head. I thought that that was going to come at the fullness of the time, chapter 1, verse 10. At the fullness of the times, Christ would become head and God would unite all things in him. But Paul says in verse 20 that God raised Christ from the dead and in verse 22 that he made him head over all things. What is going on? Is Christ, does he become head when God raises him from the dead? Or does he become head at the fullness of the times? A date that is still future for us when God sums up all things in Christ. When does Christ become head of all things? So we're going to examine that now just from a couple of other passages of Scripture. But here's why this is important. Because when Jesus becomes head, he unites all things. Wherever he reigns as head, whatever he reigns over is united together under him. Does that make sense? So when did he become head? And what is this all things that he is head over? Okay. Let's turn back just briefly to Psalm 2. And this will be page 254 in the little ESVs that I've been passing out. Page 254, Psalm 2. I'm going to just read the whole psalm. Why, the psalmist says, do the nations rage? Are they raging out there today? Why do the peoples plot in vain? What are they doing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. What do they all meet together for? They're meeting together to set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All of God's restraints, his laws, his rules, his ordering of this universe, the kings of the earth say, we're done with all that. We'll do it our way. We'll live our way. We don't want God ordering us around and telling us what to do. So what's God's response? Verse 4, he sits up in heaven and he laughs. He thinks it's quite humorous that they would try to get out from under his rule. And why? Why, verse 4, does the Lord hold them in derision? 
Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here's all the kings. They think they're going to rule the world. And God says, that is funny because I've already set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king of all the world has already been installed, apparently, according to this psalm. When? When was the king installed? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. This is the king speaking now. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. So who's the king? The son of God. Today I have begotten you. Now if you go read Acts 13, you will find out that Peter tells us that today I have begotten you took place in AD 33 when Jesus rose from the dead. So look at verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. The Lord says to this king that he's installed, you're my son. It's on this day. Which day? The day he's installed as king. That's the day God says, I have begotten you. And Peter says that was the day of resurrection. On the day of resurrection, God installed his king over all the world. So verse 8, the Lord says to this king, son, come, ask of me. I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth will become your possession. The kings of the earth think that these nations belong to them. They are the rulers, but God says no. The son will come and ask the father and say, Father, give me the nations for my inheritance. And the, son, the father will say, you will be king of them. You will break them, verse 9, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, if only all the kings of the earth could hear these verses, O kings, be wise. Your current course is a wrong course. Change course. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, not yourself. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Come before the Son and kiss Him in reverence and homage, lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in this King rather than in their own devices. So on the day of resurrection, God installed, his king, God installed his son as king over all the nations. That's what we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, right? God raised him from the dead and made him Lord of everything, the highest of the high. Does that mean that he is reigning like that now? Why in the world do the kings of the earth continue to rage? Why in the world do they continue to throw off God's rule? Why do they make Laws that are completely against God's law. Is Jesus not the king? Has he not yet become the king? Apparently he became the king at the day of resurrection. Is he the king today? Is he head of all things? Why are they not united in him? Why is there so much trouble and turmoil and strife? And the answer to that is found in Psalm 110. This is page 292, if it helps you, Army. Page 110. Uh, Psalm 110, sorry, page 292. We'll just look at verse 1. The Lord, that would be Jehovah God. See, it's in all capital letters. Jehovah God said to my Lord. Who's that? Jehovah God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What happened when he went up into heaven? 
he sat, installed as king, Psalm 2, above everything, Ephesians 1, and yet the Lord God says to him, I install you as king, but sit for a while until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, today, the son has been installed as king, but he is yet waiting to exercise his rule. He is not taking up his great power and reigning over all the kings of the earth. Him being the head over all things, that we're still waiting for that, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. That is when the times reach their fullness. And this is why, we'll just go to two more passages here before getting back to Ephesians 1. Look at Acts chapter 2, page 531. Page 531, Acts chapter 2. And let's look at verse 32. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says to all those Jews who crucified the Messiah, this Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. That's what we saw in Psalm 2, Psalm 110. He was raised up. He went up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. So having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What's he doing in heaven sitting on that throne? Is he just sitting back passive and inactive? Now, what he's doing now, as he waits to reign over the whole earth, what he's doing now is he's pouring out the Holy Spirit. And what is the effect of that? We'll come to that in a little bit. What is the effect of him pouring out the Holy Spirit? Well, verse 34, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in view of all of that, we don't have time to go through all of Peter's sermon, but here's the point of Peter's sermon. God raised up Jesus. He's pouring out the Holy Spirit now. He is waiting at the Father's right hand. Verse 36, so therefore let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God installed the king. And Peter says it. He rose up from the dead. We are witnesses to it. So you people know that God has made him Lord and Christ. He is the son whom God has installed as king. And this is why we see what we see in Revelation 5. Page 596. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that would be God the Father, I saw in his right hand a scroll written within, in other words, on the inside and on the back of the scroll. It was sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Well, what we find out in the book of Revelation is that the breaking of those seals ends up pouring out of God's judgment upon mankind that all finishes up with the second coming of Christ to reign as king. Who's worthy to start all of that? Who is worthy to bring judgment upon mankind for their rebellion against God? And the answer is there's nobody in heaven who's worthy. And so John begins to weep. 
In verse, one, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Don't weep anymore. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. He's not sitting anymore. He's standing. Standing to take that scroll, to pour out upon the earth the judgment that mankind is due for their rebellion against God. He has risen from his throne at this point. He has waited until it's time for all of his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet, and then the Father gives the signal, and he stands, takes the scroll, and begins to pour out God's judgment upon mankind. He begins to reign over the earth. And this is why Revelation 11, verse 15 says this. Revelation 11, verse 15, page 598. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. And the four and twenty elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken up your great power and have begun to reign. When is this? Verse 18, The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged. We still wait for the judgment of all of these sinners who have died. But come the fullness of the times, the elders in heaven say, Lord God, the nations have been raging. We give you praise that you have taken up your great power and begun to reign. You have, verse 18, rewarded your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name. And you have destroyed the ones who are destroying the earth. Do you see the picture? When Jesus rose from the dead, God installed him as king. And yet he waits. And at some point in the future, the Father will give the signal. He will take the scroll. He will pour out the judgments. He will enact the rule of God, the just and righteous reign of God upon this earth. And the kings of the earth on that day will have wished that they had bowed and kissed the sun. But this will bring in the final judgment of this world. And it's on that day when the sun begins to reign. He's installed as king, but today he does not reign over all of the earth. It doesn't mean he doesn't have control. It just means he's not actually exercising his kingly authority and power over the world. And so let's go back to Ephesians 1 and we'll finish up. Connect all of this to us. What does this mean for us today? Ephesians chapter 1. So what we have been looking at in Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Acts 2, Revelation 5, Revelation 11, that's what Paul's talking about in, in, in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. The fullness of the time... He'll take up his great power. He will reign. All things will be united in Christ. All the rebels will be expelled. And everything in Christ, there will be harmony and peace and righteousness that will reign. But verse 20 
God raised him up and installed him as king. Are we only waiting for that future day when he reigns? Does he reign in any sense today as head? Yes, verse 22. God put all things under his feet and gave him today as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church today is the body of Christ. He is the head and that's why Paul says time and again, the church dwells in unity by God's spirit. We were all baptized by God's spirit into one body. What is Jesus doing today on the throne? He's not reigning over the kings of the earth, but Peter tells us in Acts 2, he's pouring out the spirit. And in pouring out the spirit, what's happening? When he puts the spirit in your heart and in my heart, the result is we are joined together into one body with him as our head. This is his work today, to create a small little slice of what will one day encompass the whole world. Christ as head, reigning over a body, unified with him as its head. This is the church today. This is what God the Father is doing through his Son. His work is not solely reserved for that future day. Today he is creating a body that, I told you, chapter 1 verse 19, his great power towards us. Where does Paul explain that? Chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. What about God's great power that he worked in Christ in setting him high? Where does Paul explain that? Where he's been made head of the body. The answer is chapter 2 verses 11 through 22. What is true of this body that Christ is making today by pouring out his spirit? Here's what's true of it. Look at verse 14. He himself is our peace. Look at verse 15. He is creating in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Chapter 2, verse 16. He is reconciling us both to God in one body, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What's Paul saying? He's saying the people of God used to just be Jews, but now the Gentiles get to be part of this too. Why? Why has God included the Gentiles? It is because in including the Gentiles in Christ, now he has an opportunity to create a body that is characterized by peace and unity where formerly there was none. Think about the Jews in the Old Testament. They rally around God's law. There's no division amongst Jews, between Jews and Jews. They have a common identity as Jews. Think about all the conflict the Jews have with all the Gentile nations throughout the entire Old Testament. Think about all the conflict the Gentile nations have with each other. What if God could take Jews and all the Gentiles and unite them in one body? What would that say about him? What would that say about God if he could do that? That's what he's doing in Christ for his own glory. He's taking a representative slice of this whole world. All the nations, they all get to be part of the body of Christ. Why? 
Because this world is full of the nations that, re- that act in conflict. God is uniting them together in Christ. And the unity of that says something about the head. The unity of that says something glorious about the head. The unity of that says Jesus Christ is the head. He is the ruler. In other words, the unity of the church says Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The fact that that we have come together in churches says Jesus is alive and he's poured out the Spirit. And these things exist now because the Spirit unites us. This is God's plan for the world. And God is doing a little bit of it today in the church. So what does this mean for us? First of all, the church exists because Jesus rose from the dead. If he never rose, he never ascended up to the Father, he never received the promise of the Spirit, and he never was able to pour out the Spirit, would there be any such thing as local gatherings of the body of Christ? There wouldn't be. The reason these things exist is because Jesus rose from the dead. And he's gone up to reign. And that means that the advance of the church is as sure and certain as the resurrection of Christ. This is why Paul says, if he didn't rise, our faith and our preaching is vain. But if he did, then the church will advance. People will be gathered in. They will be given the spirit and the church will exist in unity. The second thing this means is that the resurrection was actually the turning point in all of history. Think about history up to this, up to the point of Christ in the Old Testament. Sin, more sin, more nations raging, more throwing off God's law. We will do our own thing, they said. And all of this sin reaches its climax or its depth, its lowest point in what? The crucifixion of the Son of God. Talk about injustice. Talk about rebelling against God. God says, I'm going to install him as the king and the, and, and the nations, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and Jews say, no, we're not having this man to reign over us. We will remove him from this earth. That was the low point of human rebellion against God. And God really did nothing about it up to that point. But Jesus was crucified. He was raised to new life. And now God is doing something. He's picking up all of these rebels who have gone their own way and created conflict. He's picking them up and he's gathering them together again. He's restoring the original creation. He's gathering all things in Christ. And it all began at the resurrection. That's where things started to take another trajectory. So if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith and our hope is vain. Our hope for our own personal human salvation is vain because we've been raised up with Christ. If Christ hasn't been raised, we won't be also. We we have not been either. We would still be in our sins. But if Christ has not been raised, then these gatherings of God's people that we call local churches are nothing more than gatherings of soon-to-be-disappointed hopefuls. We're hopeful, but why do we gather around this hope that Jesus Christ has poured out his spirit and is coming back? but we'll be disappointed. There's nothing to these gatherings if Jesus didn't rise. But he did. He's the head of the body. He's the one who creates them now by his spirit. 
And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we have no hope of this future world that is any different from our world today. What hope do we have that, that this world will change course in any, in any shape or form? It is only this, Jesus rose from the dead and he's been installed as king and the only thing waiting for him, the only thing that we wait for now is the Father's signal that he rise and exercise that authority. And we have that hope that this world will change because of Jesus' resurrection. Two more brief things that this means for us and then we will finish. The third thing that this means is that we today in the church, we're actually participating in that new world that's coming. Think about it. How will God make all things new? How will he unite them together in Jesus Christ? He's already started that work today. He has united people from all the nations into Jesus Christ. And come that day, it's as though Jesus Christ is moving through history. And on that day when God says to him, now is your time to reign over all of the earth. On that day, he's not going to let us go. All that happens is we continue with him into that new age, and now all things are united to him. In other words, what God began at the resurrection terminates in eternal, eternity future, and we've already started that today. It's called the church. The church is a little slice of what's coming then, and we get to participate in that today. And fourthly, this means that the unity of the church is of paramount importance. On display today in the church is God's power to unite the world together again. And yes, we're all sinners. And yes, there is plenty of disunity. And yes, there are people who get up ahead of steam, ambitious people in the church, and, and they destroy the unity of the church. But where we say, no, I will not be the head of the church, Jesus Christ will where we submit ourselves to him and set him as the head, then the unity happens. And my own personal preferences are not the center of the church, but Jesus Christ is. Then we have a church that exists in unity. We are here to live under Christ's lordship, not our own, and together we live under the blessing of his rule. Now there is an accusation that you will hear today if you talk about Jesus Christ or religion to people, they will say to you, you know that all the conflict and strife in the world of the last 2,000 years or 4,000 years has all been because of religion, right? Like look at the Crusades. That was all religious warfare, right? Look at Islam, religion, all of the conflict that that's caused. All the conflict in the world today is because of religion. If we could only do away with religion, we would have a beautiful paradise. This is what people will say today. I've heard it many times already in Brisbane. Is that true? Partially, yes. The reason why religion creates conflict is because the gods that those people worship are not the supreme God. They are only big enough to unite the Moabites. The gods that they worship are only big enough to unite the Ammonites. The gods that the Ammonites worship are not big enough to unite the whole world. The only God who can unite the whole world is the God who exists, who created the whole world. And so the problem is religion. The solution is worship of the true God. That is what our world needs today. There's no power that these world religions can conceive of who can unite all things in one, but our God can because he is God of all things and because he raised up his son as Lord of all things. He tells us he will do it. 
This is the hope that we have that comes through Christ's resurrection. And so that's why we gather on the Lord's Day. That's why we gather on the Day of Resurrection. Because on the Day of Resurrection, Christ poured out His Spirit. And now, as a result, the church is gathered. We gather by the Spirit. Christ has poured out upon us. So let's pray. And then, any questions, take those. Be dismissed. Lord God, thank you for your work in Christ that gives us hope for this sad world. If Christ has not raised, we are as hopeless and miserable as all other men in this world, and even more so. But he has been raised. We shall be too. And this world will be one in Christ Jesus. All the rebellion put down, all the sin dismissed and destroyed, those who belong to Christ will reign with him in a world of righteousness and joy and peace and harmony because Jesus is the head. Lord, we ask that churches across this world who gather in Christ's name, who say that he is their head, we pray, Lord, that he truly would be their head I pray that you would remove from the church ambitious people who want to be the center of the thing. I pray, Lord, that you would correct them, that you would reorient them to Jesus Christ as the center of the church so that when he is the head, the church today may exist as a small slice, a microcosm, a model of what you will do one day in the world. And Lord, as we exist in unity and love and peace together as believers, I pray that the world would look on and see something that cannot be accomplished out there by their own human strength. I pray, Lord, that the unity and love that your people display towards one another would testify to the world that Jesus is alive, that he does have the power to unite People who once went their own way. He unites us by refocusing and reorienting our lives, our vision, our love, our affection for him. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that here in Brisbane. Give us this kind of unity by your Holy Spirit. And may we be careful. May we endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Any questions? We've kind of gone from the beginning to the end of the Bible in a way, so there's probably plenty of things that you could ask. Um, there's plenty of connections we could make, but uh, anything that went clear? More clear, less clear? <laughs> no? Okay. Well, let's just take our song sheet, and I just want to read you um, the words to this hymn, it goes by several different names, The Sands of Time or Emmanuel's Land. This is what we look forward to as believers. But in a way, what we see here can be true. It should be true of the church today. It will be true of the church today when Christ is head. Focuses our attention on the fact that time is passing. The sands of time, think of an hourglass. 
They are sinking lower and lower. The dawn of heaven breaks. We're in the midnight now of the sands of time passing, but heaven's dawn is breaking soon. This summer morn that I've sighed for, this fair, sweet morning awakes. The midnight that we live in now has been dark. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but the springing of day is at hand. And in that land, in Emmanuel's land, glory, glory dwells. Christ, stanza two, he is the fountain. He is the deep, sweet well from which all of our love flows. We have tasted the streams on earth, but our decision is that above we will drink more deeply. That is where our heart and our affection is. There, above, his mercy expands to an ocean's fullness. And there in that land, glory, glory dwells. In our lives today, stanza three, my web of time that he's weaving, he weaves it with mercy and with judgment. Don't we see that in our lives, God's mercy, and yet also his judgment. And A, or for always, the dews of sorrow, we experience sorrow, but nevertheless, like dew, they sparkle, they are lustered with his love. Even in our sorrows, we find his love. And so our response, I'll bless the hand that guides, I'll bless, praise that heart that has planned when I'm throned where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. All that we see of ourselves in this life and God's work for us is going to fill us up with praise for Jesus Christ when we stand in Emmanuel's land. Verse 4, I belong to my beloved. He is mine. He has brought this poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand not upon my own merit. I stand upon his merit. I don't know any other place that I could stand, no other foundation upon which I could stand before the Lord and be received, not even where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. And so, for us now, where is our focus? The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory. In other words, the glories of this world, that's not my focus. Instead, I will gaze upon my king of grace. Not even at the crown he gives, but instead upon his pierced hand. The lamb, he is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And when he is all the glory of these little outposts of heaven upon earth today that exist in different cities, when he is all the glory of these little outposts, then this will be the character of those gatherings upon earth. The character of the local church is supposed to reflect the character of the universal church. That we will experience one day. So let's remember and give thanks to the Lord this week for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and pray that by the power of his resurrection, uh, he would gather together believers here in Brisbane for us to fellowship with and experience these things for his glory. Lord God, thank you for being kind to us. We are sinners. We do not deserve these things. I pray, Lord, that our own sin, we would subject that to Christ, not holding on to it, but turning it over to him for his judgment, 
his forgiveness, his cleansing, that we might walk with brothers and sisters in love and harmony. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. next week we'll go back to Ephesians 4.